All righty, John chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 15 through 20 and then drop down and read verses 25 through 29 as well. As we begin a look for the next eight weeks at the Holy Spirit, we begin now with an introduction to the Holy Spirit. Hear God's word from John chapter 14. Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth from whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and you will be and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Drop down to verse 25 and we'll continue our reading there. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place. So that when it does take place, you may believe. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit for eight weeks. What comes to mind when you hear me say the Holy Spirit, when you hear that we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit for the next eight weeks? Do you think of Pentecost? Is that what comes to mind? Think of that that great day where there's tongues of fire on the apostles' heads and they go out and a bunch of people, there's revival in Jerusalem. Is that what you think of? Do you think maybe of like the physical expressions that the Bible, descriptions that the Bible gives of the Holy Spirit's work, that it's like fire or like wind? Do you think immediately does the word mystery or perhaps in more layman's terms, confusing? Is that what comes to mind? Do you think of crazy religious experiences Do you think of maybe groups of Christians known as Pentecostals or Charismatics? Those people, we might be thinking. These Christians who are always talking about speaking in tongues or prophesying or doing miracles. Do you think, some of you, when that comes to mind, you then the next thing you think of is danger. Watch out. Be careful when you talk about the Holy Spirit's. In fact, some of you might be going, oh boy, the Holy Spirit. We all have nervous tummies now because of talking about the Holy Spirit. There has been in the church in its history, and in in particular the last 120 years or so, great confusion in regards to the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. There are a lot of churches that talk about the Holy Spirit and the experiences that come by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what they focus on almost entirely and to the exclusion of almost everything else. It is all about getting and being baptized and being baptized again and being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's what the Christian life is entirely about. And yet then there are dangers on the other side. There are those Christians who are frankly afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit and rarely even mention him. They hardly ever even think about him. In fact, 
Some of you may know this, but some of you may have wandered in and not known this, but the KCP, the P of KCP is Presbyterian. There's an old joke about the Trinity and what they do for vacation. And the joke goes like this, that the Father likes to go to the mountains since they reflect his majesty and power. The son likes to go to Palestine, to go to his old stomping drowns, to, to visit the beach. He likes the warmth of the wilderness and hanging out in Bethlehem, seeing old friends. But the spirit, the spirit decides to go to a Presbyterian church because he wanted to go to some place he had never been before. The point is this, is that because of the confusion, because in, in, there are many denominations and many Christians who simply do not know what in the world to do with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And this is a shame, because remember, we are talking about God. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity. We're talking about the one who is a gift to us. And in fact, my goal this morning and over the next two months is to communicate clearly enough about the person and work of the Holy Spirit that you come to a place that not only do you understand him better and his work in your life, but having understood him better, that that would set you free to come to a place of awe-filled worship at the unbelievable gift that the Holy Spirit is for us. And that we, like Ed did so beautifully this morning, would begin to be a people who pray to the Holy Spirit, who cry out to the Holy Spirit, who long to be filled with the Holy Spirit for our joy and for the mission of the church. And so this morning we begin with an introduction. An introduction we simply want to ask, as we would often do for introducing a a topic or a subject, we simply want to ask some systemic questions about the Holy Spirit. This morning, it's going to be a little bit crunchy. It's going to be a lot of A, B, and C, and one, two, three. This is going to be, we're putting up the scaffolding as to where we're going to go for the next eight weeks. And so, bear with me. This is going to be less preaching and more teaching. The word is, it's going to be more didactic and a little bit more academic. We're going to be swimming in some of the deep end of the pool in order to get the scaffolding down so that in the weeks to come, we can preach more clearly the good news of the Holy Spirit. The three questions I want to ask this morning, and they're there on your outline in your sermon guide or your worship guide that you grabbed this morning, your bulletin. Here's the three questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? Second, what does he do? And third, we're simply going to ask the question to end, why are we studying him? Why study the Holy Spirit? First question. Here we go. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a couple of things that are fairly obvious really quickly right off the bat. The Spirit is holy, and he is a spirit. Holy is the word hagios, which means set apart. There is nothing uh, impure. He is perfect in his character and his attributes and his righteousness. And then he is a spirit. While the, the Greek and the Hebrew words for spirit are ruach in the Hebrew and pneuma in the Greek. And both of these words mean breath or wind, which brings to mind that the spirit is a power. And indeed he is. He is a power. He's a mighty force that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes in power, there is a rushing wind and there is flames, tongues of flames on the apostles' foreheads and there is great power that goes out in their midst because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to see that even these earthly descriptions, and the Bible is using earthly descriptions of wind and fire, not the band, 
But the earthly description of wind and fire to describe the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to see in this, that when, when we talk about the Spirit as a wind and fire, often that can begin to shape our minds to think of the Holy Spirit too impersonally. As if the Spirit is merely just kind of not a personal force, but just this kind of power that is out there. This energy that is out in the world or energy that's in our lives. But the first thing I want you to see about the Holy Spirit and who he is, is that the Spirit is a person. A person. Let's look at our text this morning, John 14, verses 17, then drop down to verse 26. It says this, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A lot of hymns there. It doesn't refer to the Spirit as an it. It's giving him personal pronouns. And then verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. It's don't teach you things. Persons teach you things. The Spirit is not referred to here and in the Scriptures as an it. He is a he. He is not an impersonal energy in force, but the Spirit moves by his will and by his desires into our lives. You have a relationship with a person. And let me further explain this. The scriptures consistently give the Holy Spirit the, not just simply the personal pronoun of a person, but the activities of a person. We already saw in verse 26 that the Spirit teaches. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You don't grieve it. In Hebrews 10, 29, it says that the Holy Spirit can be outraged. And in Romans 15, it says that the Holy Spirit loves us. So the Spirit is grieved, he gets angry, he loves. These are all the activities of a person as someone who is interacting and doing dialogue with us. So here's the question, why does it matter that the Spirit is a person and not simply an impersonal energy force in our lives? It matters because the Bible commands us, and we'll look at this in a couple weeks, but it commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And we ask the question, how do we get filled with the Spirit? If you're filled with the Spirit and you think of the Spirit as an impersonal force, you're going to seek about being filled by the Spirit in one way than you would if He is a personal being. If you understand Him simply to be mechanical and impersonal, then you're going to go about being filled by the Spirit in a mechanical and impersonal way. In fact, this is the way many people in the Christian world even talk about the Spirit. They see Him as this kind of general electric charge. And therefore, the way you get the Spirit to fill your life and to bring change into your life is that you just push the right spiritual buttons. You repent of this, and you read this, and you pray this, and if you do X, Y, and Z, it's an algebraic equation, and then you get filled with the Spirit. But that is not how you're filled with the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit is a person. You have a relationship with the Spirit. Which means this, if you desire to be filled with the Spirit, it's like being filled, having your life filled with a person. You have a dynamic, ongoing relationship. And it's not a matter of just hitting a few spiritual buttons and then poof, the Spirit is in your life. No, you have a relationship with Him. And that's the same way that you have a relationship with a person. When my wife and I began to date, she began and she began to fill my life. Know what it did? It changed everything about my life. 
And that's how it is with the spirits. It is not a matter of just tweaking a few things in your life in order to be filled by him. And in a mechanical way, and pulling on this string, and letting more, something else loose here. But it is a matter of having your whole life centered on and transformed by the spirits. He affects everything in a relational way. So you see, first, that the Holy Spirit is a person. Second, I also want you to see this, that the Spirit is God. Not a God, he is God. All major attributes that we see attributed to both the Father and the Son are also attributed to the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter specifically calls the Holy Spirit God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, calls the Holy Spirit the living God. In Matthew chapter 28, it says that we are to baptize in the name of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we see in our passage here, in John chapter 14, verse 16, we see another connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit as being the same. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 16, I'm going to send you another helper or another counselor or depending on your uh, scripture version that you have, maybe advocates. Now we'll look at the counselor helper in just a minute, but for now I actually want to focus on the word that precedes it. Another helper. Now there are two different words in the Greek, and I'm sorry, we're going to have a deep dive into the Greek for just a moment here. There's two Greek words in the Greek for another. The first is, is heteros. It's where we get the word such as heterosexual. An, an other, another. And it means another of a different kind. It is another person, but they are different from me. And yeah, and then there's the other Greek word for another, which is alos, which is another of the same exact kind. And the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek in, in verse 16 is this, is alos. He is saying that I'm going to send you a helper who is exactly like me. Exactly like me. Remember, Jesus makes all kinds of claims as to who he is. Jesus claims to be divine. He claims to be the son of God. He claims to be Lord of the universe, Lord of lords and king of kings. And so when he says, oh, and another one of me is coming to you, it means that what is coming to you is the one who is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and who is indeed divine just as Jesus is divine. So the Spirit, at the same time, though, while he is another just like Jesus, he is not Jesus. You getting as confused as you ought to be? See, so the Spirit is not Jesus, but he is another. He is the same, but he is not the same. He is another. Jesus twists up here things even more for us in verses 18 and 28 in chapter, of chapter 14 of John. He says this in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Right as he said, I am leaving you. I'm leaving you, but not as orphans. I will actually come to you. And then verse 28, he says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. Okay, Jesus. This is a little bit confusing. Jesus says, another, the Holy Spirit is going to come live inside of you. But when he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of you, that means that Jesus comes to live inside of you. In other words, what we are bumping up in hints here is drops a smack dab into this little doctrine that we like to call the Trinity. The Trinity. Now, I've spent a lot of time in my life at various points trying to figure out the Trinity. And one time I did. I did. I figured out the Trinity. But wouldn't you know, I forgot to write it down. 
And I, so I've forgotten how to explain it to you. Here's real briefly what the doctrine of the Trinity is and see if you can make heads or tails out of it. A doctrine of the Trinity is this, is that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not like three gods, like a little God family. That's called polytheism, and that's what Mormons believe. It's not God in three modes where God keeps changing costumes. Like sometimes he shows up as the Father, and sometimes he shows up as the Son, and other times he shows up as the Spirit. That's called modalism. Or it is not also that it's one God, and each, there's, each person of the Trinity is a part of God. That's called partialism. No, the historic teaching of who the biblical God is, is there's one God who exists eternally as three persons. Now, if you can make heads or tails out of that, then you are either crazy or you're the most brilliant, you're probably God. Because it is a mystery and it's beyond our understanding. We believe in the Trinity not because we understand it. It is logical. It is reasonable, but we do not understand it. But we believe in the Trinity because it is what is revealed to us in the Scriptures. Christianity is a revealed religion, not discovered or a dreamed up religion. If Christianity were an invented religion, you certainly wouldn't have invented the Trinity because nobody can understand it. So God, but instead, what we have in Christianity is a revealed religion where God says, this is who I am, and you can take it or leave it, but I'm not going to dumb myself down in order for you to fully and completely get your head around who I am. So we ask this, so who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person in the Godhead, a member of our Trinitarian God. You feel clear? Okay, that's the tough stuff. Sometimes it's easier if you're going to try to describe wind. If your kid comes to you and says, hey, what is wind? What do you do? The wind is like, it comes from, no, let me. The wind is like, no, ah, wait. It's sometimes easier to describe the Trinity, not so much in who he is, and describe the Holy Spirit in who he is, but maybe simply by looking at what he does. So let's move on to the second question, and maybe we'll get out of the deep end of the pool a little bit. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is a person, and he is God. Second question, though, is what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? How do we see him moving and active in the world? In a general way, I want to say this. The Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is to do anything that God does, because he is God. And because he is unified and connected with the Father and the Son. And therefore, whenever you see the Father acting, where you see the Son acting, the Holy Spirit is there acting as well and working as well. Whenever God does something in the Bible, the Spirit is the actual agent of the work. Therefore, in Genesis chapter 1, where we see that God the Father is creating, we also see that the Spirit is there present, acting as the agent of his creative work in the worlds. The Christian life, all aspects of it, is life in the Spirit. But I want to look particularly this morning at three particular works of the Spirit as we see them in John chapter 14. In verses 16 and 17 is where we see all three of these. The first I want you to see is this. The first work of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit communicates truth. He's a truth communicator. In verse 17 it says this, even the Spirit of truth is going to be with you. In other words, what I want to, I want to put it simply like this. The Spirit is the author of the Bible. John 14, verses 26, it says this, But the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Who is Jesus speaking to here? He is speaking to the apostles, the very ones who will write the New Testament. In other words, that your Bible comes to you courtesy of men who wrote the Bible in their own name and in their own culture and by their own ways, but they did so under the inspiration and the direction of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you read the Bible, you're always reading simultaneously from two authors, the human one and the divine one. And the divine one is working in and through Peter and Paul and John and Moses. Therefore, when you read Paul, it sounds like Paul. But it's God speaking through him. If you read Peter, it sounds like Peter. If you read John, John has a different sound and Luke has a different sound. God uses and works through who these men are, but he speaks clearly through them. If I can give you an analogy, it's like this. When, when you, if you've had a toddler and you're a child who's learning how to walk, and they're at that stage where they're beginning to cruise a little bit, and they can kind of stand up, but they fall down all the time, or they, maybe they can't fully carry themselves up by their own weight and own power, but you hold their fingers, and they grasp tightly, tightly to your index fingers, and you guide them, and you walk behind them, and they walk along. Now, it's actually their feet that are walking, but who ultimately has the power in directing them where they're going to go? A toddler who's learning how to walk has no power and control as to where they're really going, right? They look like they're drunk, if they can even stand up at all. But you as the adult can actually direct. That is how there's two people walking there. The toddler is indeed actually walking, just as the apostles actually did indeed write the word of God. But it is God's spirit who is actually inspiring and directing them in their hearts to write down what God directed them to write down. A spirit doesn't just, though, write the scriptures. He doesn't simply inspire the scriptures to be written. We also see this is he is also known as the illuminator of the scriptures. In other words, he is the spirit of truth so that when you read the Bible, you know that it is truth. The spirit is the one who helps you understand the Bible. If you're like, if you're like me, I'm kind of an artistic, like, neophyte. I, I, I look at a piece, a painting, a great work of art or poetry, a great piece of high-end literature, and I read it and I kind of go, I, I don't understand what that story was trying to tell me at all. Or I look at a great piece of artwork and I go, the colors are really pretty. I don't know what else I'm supposed to see here. You know, sometimes that's how we feel when we read the Bible. Okay, that was a lot of poetry, Isaiah, but I don't really understand it. But you know what? We have this great benefit. Have you ever been and talked to actually a poet or an artist, and they actually will sit and describe to you what they're trying to communicate in their artwork? We have this great benefit, that when you seek to read the scriptures, not you, when you, the person who is sitting there describing it and helping you understand it is the very author himself. The author writes the scriptures, the spirit of God, and then he comes to live inside of you and to illumine your hearts and minds so that you too might understand God's words. Even you. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12, it says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now a couple applications here really briefly, very speedily. In regards to the spirit being the spirit of truth as part of his work, there is a warning here, first and foremost. 
The Holy Spirit never speaks contrary to what he has already spoken in the Bible. This is actually one of the biggest problems that some people would have with those involved in the necessarily the Pentecostal, the charismatic movement. And actually, I don't think it's necessarily, it's just a problem in all of evangelical churches. That Christians, we have this understanding of the Spirit as if he's just kind of meandering around and that he, we get him confused with our own personal desires. So let me tell you this, that the Spirit, if the Spirit is leaving, leading you to leave your spouse, you come to me and say, I think the Spirit is leading me to leave my spouse. Have they, have they cheated on you? Have they abused you? No. They're just, I just don't really love them anymore. I'm sorry, you have not heard from the Spirit. You may have heard from something else some other spiritual force, but it is not the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God has written his word. He has already spoken, and therefore, if he speaks to you, it is not in contrary to what he has already said in his words. An experience with the Holy Spirit is not some unhinged, hyper-realized magic trick. But all the truths that the Holy Spirit will speak to you, he has already spoken them in his words. He is simply applying the truths of the word and specific situations to your life. So there's a warning there. Do not, do not misuse God's word and do not misuse your sense of the spirit speaking into your life. And second, those two other applications, these are more positive. Because the Holy Spirit is the illuminator of the word, then you can read the scriptures with confidence and delight, even for those of you that are new believers. There, is a, there are those in our church who have been Christians for 20 and 30 and 40 years, and we've had this, I've heard this recently, in which there are people in our church in which they're maybe new believers or new to studying God's word in any kind of depth, and they get involved in some other people in our church who have been believers for 40 years, and they're almost intimidated, and they're almost scared to open their Bibles because they go, I don't know as much as these people. But I want you to understand this. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, then God has given you all the power that is necessary in order for you to also understand God's words, to study hard and to do so with joy and delight. And the third application of the fact that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth who gives us God's word is this, is because the Spirit is the illuminator of the word, the illuminator of truth, then we can read the word over and over and over again and experience new heights of delight and insight. That's a great thing. You ever experienced that? A passage of scripture that you've probably read 20 or 30 times in your life and yet you go to it and suddenly you're reading it with fresh and new eyes. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Constantly making the word of God fresh. So the spirit is the spirit of truth. The second work of the spirit is this. The spirit is, the spirit advocates. Now, the word here in verse 16, it says this, that the Spirit, Jesus is going to send another helper or another counselor, depending on the various version of the scriptures that you have. The Greek word that undergirds this word is the word parakaleo, and it has a broad range of meaning. That's why there's so many different, uh, different ways in which people have interpreted this word. But literally the word parakaleo, para means alongside, to stand alongside somebody. And kaleo means to declare or to argue, or to call. Therefore, I actually think the best interpretation for this word is advocates. That the person of the Spirit stands next to you and makes a case and argues and speaks the truth on your behalf, either to you or towards somebody else. This person defends you against all of your enemies, defends you in a court of law. That's what an advocate does. Now, this advocate of the Holy Spirit's 
when he comes to stand next to you and to defend you and to speak the truth to you, sometimes that truth is hard and sometimes that truth is comforting. For example, sometimes the spirit of the truth comes to you as your advocate, as your helper, and has to help you by saying hard things to you. Sometimes the Spirit has to come and convict you. And John chapter 16, verses 7 through 8, we'll look at this passage in a couple weeks in more detail. It says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, this is again Jesus speaking, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, what will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what does the word do? How does he help us and comfort us? By convicting us of sin, of bringing us to repentance. He does this in love, but sometimes it's the kind of love of a friend who, is a, who knows an addict and has to go and intervene in that addict's life and says, your life, your life is destructive. It is killing you, what you are doing, and they have to confront, and sometimes the spirit has to help us by confronting us and convicting us of our spirits. Tim Keller pastor in New York City says it this way. He says, sometimes the spirit is against, when he's against you, he is for you. That he is for you by being against you, by calling you out in your sinfulness. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just convict you, but he also defends you and comforts you with the truth. You see, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin, but then to defend you when all the enemies arrayed in this world against you would seek to use your sin to condemn you. Your heart begins to tell you that you are condemned before God. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Does He stands next to you in the court of public opinion, in the court of before the evil one. When the evil one comes and says, you are condemned, you are worthy of hell, you have no forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, that is not true. That is a lie. For my God's word says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit is the one who comes and advocates on your behalf. The Spirit is the one who comes and says to you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, he says, I have made them as white as snow. And 1 John 2 is the Holy Spirit that says when our hearts condemn us, it says that God is greater than our hearts. That means this, for those of you that have a spirit and a conscience inside of you, you're you're, you're convicted of your sin and you're constantly feeling guilty and you have voices of condemnation that God's spirit speaks louder. That's good news. And in fact, he stands up and says that God loves you and he forgives you. And even when you're in maybe the world and your circumstances are speaking lies to you and saying, oh my goodness, you have this suffering in your life. The Spirit calls us out and says, do not read the tea leaves of your circumstances and your suffering, but listen to this. In Hebrews 13, 5, the Spirit says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In suffering, it doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. The Spirit says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fires, they will not consume you. Why? Because I am with you. The Spirit is the one who calls us and tells us of God's love and his assurance in our life. And this is what Paul meant when he said the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Because what the evil one would love for you to believe is that you are not welcome in God's presence, that you are not his because of your sin. And what the Spirit does is come and convict you and says, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. You are. You are a child of God. 
And so when it's the evil one, or maybe it's even a person in your life who seeks to destroy you and tell you, you are, <laughs> you are not worthy of having a good father, who comes and whispers to you, adopted children in this room. Literally, you, you have been adopted. And the, whole, the evil one would come and say, my goodness, because you were forsaken, perhaps, by your first parents, you are not worthy of love and affection. The Holy Spirit of God looks at you and says, that is not true. Not only are you worthy of love and affection from another human being, but God the Father, the one who has created you and shaped you in your mother's womb, says you are mine. May you listen to the voice of the Spirit, the third work of the Spirit. He's a truth teller. He's an advocate with that truth telling. And lastly, we see that the Spirit is a dweller. He dwells with you and in you. Verse 16 and 17 of John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to do what? To be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and indeed will be in you. The Spirit, he's like the wind. You don't know when or where. You can't control him. But at the same time, understand this. The Spirit is willing to domesticate himself. And he finds a home in the hovel that is called your heart. And he dwells with you. He takes up residence and he settles in into the comfort chair of your soul. And he's going to bring Jesus to bear there. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who is the divine one who makes the Trinity personal in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It is the Holy Spirit who takes God's forgiveness and convinces us of it. He's the Holy Spirit who convinces us and tells us of Jesus and connects us to Jesus. By the indwelling of the Spirit, we have fellowship with Jesus and the Father. It is the, it's the person of the Trinity, this third person of the Trinity, to connect us to Jesus and the Father. That's his work. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says this. Paul is praying for his friends, and he says, I pray that out of the glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power. Through whom? How? Through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so that I pray that you may being rooted and established in love may be convinced to know how great and deep and high and wonderful is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Who convinces your heart of that? That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the great matchmaker between the divine one and our broken human beings. So let me draw this out by pointing out an aspect of this aspect of Christianity. A key point of Christianity is that you are once separated from God because of your sin. God could have nothing to do with you. He was completely distant from us because we had separated ourselves from him. We had rejected him. But now we have been made to know, to know what? Intimate connection with Christ. It actually says this in John 14, verse 20. In that day, in the day when the Holy Spirit invades your heart, and that day you will know that Jesus is in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Who is it that convinces your heart that your sin doesn't, no longer keeps you from God? Good. But specifically the Holy Spirit's. And when the Holy Spirit is given to dwell in us, the fa- why don't you, this, if you guys would give a little crowd, more crowd participation, we, things would go a lot better around here. <laughs> when the Spirit of God is given to dwell in us, the followers of Jesus will know that God was in Jesus, and now Jesus is in us, and therefore we are in God the Father. So this is the work of the Spirit, to dwell in us, to speak the truth to us, and the word in our hearts. Last question, we come to a close this morning. 
Why should we study the Holy Spirit? Well, certainly I want you guys to have right doctrine and clarity of understanding about the Holy Spirit. That's really important. But if we leave it at that, that's really, we, have a, we want to go further than that. We want some, I want something more to you. I said at the beginning, why are we doing this? I want to speak about the Holy Spirit for the next week, eight weeks because I want you to come to be brought to a place of amazed joy at the unspeakably loving gift you have in the Holy Spirit that has been given to you by the work of Christ Jesus. Did you know that the Holy Spirit comes courtesy of Jesus? Jesus says he's going away, and yet he says it's for your good. You ever thought about that? We, we, we tend to think, well, man, if, Jesus, if just Jesus was in the room with us, we'd be all good. We'd not sin. We would be really motivated. We'd be super inspired all the time. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's better for me to go away. It's actually a more powerful experience of Jesus' presence if I will send to you the Holy Spirit. That's what an amazing gift he is. I want you to see that Jesus came to earth, lived and died, so that he might give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't just show up in the New Testament. He's present and active in the Old Testament, but we also we see in the Old Testament, the Old Testament will point time and time again to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in a greater and more abundant way when the Messiah comes. Let me just read some of these passages to you. The prophets foretold that when the Messiah of God would come, Jesus himself, that when that would happen, the Spirit would be poured out. For example, in Isaiah 32, 15, it says, the Spirit would be poured out on us from on high. In Isaiah 44, 3, when God promised, he says, I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit upon your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. The same phrasing of pouring out is used in Ezekiel to when God said, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God." when I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel. And then perhaps the most famous passage in the Old Testament about the coming and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is Joel chapter 2, verse 28, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when it says, And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When, when, is, he gonna, when is this going to happen? When the Messiah comes. Now we come to John. Not John 14, but I want to look briefly at John chapter 1. John the Baptist is announcing and declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. John the Baptist says, it's my role. I'm here to tell you, Israel, there he is. There's the Messiah. There's the one you've been wanting and waiting for for all these millennia. And he says he provides two words, John the Baptist does, about who this Jesus, this Messiah is and what he will do. Now, you may know the very famous one, what he says about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 29 John the Baptist says this, the next day he saw, he being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's the Messiah going to do when he comes? He's going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we get that, right? We understand that. That Jesus comes to die for our sins, to take our sins away. But John is not finished with his description as to why the Messiah has come. Keep reading in verse 30 of John chapter 1. This is he, he of whom I said, after me, this is John speaking, after me comes a man who ranks above me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. That means he didn't recognize Jesus as being the Messiah until God revealed it to him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I ask you again, what does John say the Messiah has come to do? There is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But that is not just it, is it? There is Jesus. There is the Messiah who comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I want you to say to you is this. Is that all of us, if you're a Christian, we probably you've been convinced that being a Christian means that you trust in Jesus to die for your sins, for your forgiveness. But what I would say to you is that is only half the gospel message. And that by leaving out the work of the Holy Spirit, we've actually neglected a whole half of what the Messiah came to provide for us. There are two great gifts of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The gift of the Holy Spirit is as much integral to Jesus' work and how he saves you as is the remission and the cleansing of sins. So we, could never, we should never conceive of our salvation as merely in negative terms. That Jesus came to take away our sins and to die for our, for our sinfulness, to take our guilt and wrath and death. We thank God for those things, don't we? But what we believe is also that there is a positive blessing that Jesus gives to us. That the good news of the New Testament is this, is that there is one who has come to die for your sins, but not only that, but who has come to give you the very power of God himself to reside in you. And when he gives you the Holy Spirit, do you understand the blessings of what he gives you? And this is what we're going to look at for the next seven weeks. That when the Holy Spirit comes, this gift comes, it means you are reborn spiritually. That the Spirit is the one who illumines your heart so that you can read the scriptures properly. That the Spirit is the one who convicts you of sin. That the Spirit is the one who empowers you to, de- to defeat sin and to overcome temptation. That the Spirit is the one who shines a bright light on the glory of Jesus and then shines the glory of Jesus upon your heart. That it is the Holy Spirit who turns the glory of Jesus upon us, who brings sinners to the Savior for justification and then also sanctifies those same sinners so they may be righteous in God's sights. The Holy Spirit is the sign, the sealer, and the guarantor that you are saved. All of those things are blessings of the Holy Spirit. And so if you truncate your Christianity to this is Jesus died for my sins, then you haven't believed the whole message. That the gospel is actually not just that Jesus died for my sins, but he sent him very self in my life to change me now so that even now I can experience intimacy with God the Father and with God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. And this is why I want you to be celebratory that we're going through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at each of those parts, the fact that the Spirit rebirths you, that he's the one who regenerates you, that he's the one who changes you and sanctifies you, that he's the one who brings the power of God the Father and God the Son into your life. Do you understand what you've been given in the blessing of the Holy Spirit? It is an insurmountable, unbelievable, indescribable blessing. And it comes to you courtesy of the work of of Jesus Christ. He died. We're going to go to the table now. Jesus died so that you might have the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. He paid for your sins to open the door for God himself to come live in your life. And this is the good news of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the gospel. Let's go to God's word or go to God's table 
and let's pray together. If those of you who are serving communion, if you'll come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world. That when Jesus left, he came and did his forgiving work, but Lord, then you came and applied that work to us through the work of your spirits. And so, Lord, may we be a people who actually experience you. That we would be Christians that, Lord, for those in this room who are dry spiritually, would cry out and say, God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Because I want to experience the love of Jesus again. I want to hear the voice of the Father speak his affection over me again. I want to hear the forgiving work, and I want it to move me and my affections again. Spirit, fill me. So, Lord, would you do that work even now? Lord, we set aside this bread and this cup. They are simple elements. And yet, Lord, we believe that your Spirit fills these elements to be gracious to us, to convince us of the truth. And so, Spirit, now come and be present in the bread and the cup to fill us up once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.